0: Hey everyone, welcome back to SEO Convergence. We're here today for a first of many conversation on diversity and equity, okay? And the reason why this is the first of many is because it's not something that you can tackle in just one sitting, and it's definitely not something you could process in one sitting. So we're gonna take it slow, we're gonna be thorough, and we're gonna hear from a lot of A lot of very knowledgeable people and their experiences on diversity and equity. So Tom, why don't you take us into it? Mike, thanks so much. We have two brilliant women with us today, uh, two women that I care about, respect immensely, and we want to hear their voices. Uh, I'm going to let these two ladies introduce themselves. Jamila, will you start?
1: Hi, I'm Jamela Parker. I am a school social worker in um, Burlington County, New Jersey. Um, and I have been working with the preschool population for the past almost 16 years now. Um, I'm also the mother of an almost 15-year-old. Um, and that's two different worlds of between home, home and work. Uh, some things are similar, but lots mm-hmm. of other things are different. And I'm just happy to be a part of uh, today's podcast.
0: I'm thrilled to have you here, my friend. I don't know if you remember, I'm a Burlington boy.
1: Yes, I uh, do remember. Born and
0: raised on a cornfield in New Jersey, in Burlington. And so Jamila brings us some fantastic perspective today, working with the preschool children, the little ones, that all of us have a responsibility to bring education to and to bring truth to. And then she also has the perspective of a mom, of a teenager, which is so, so critically important today and our other friend, Krista. Can you introduce yourself, Krista?
2: Of course. Hi, everyone. My name is Krista Lay. I was a former high school social studies teacher. Um, I've been in education for 22 years now, and I'm very passionate about social-emotional learning and how it integrates with the topics of diversity awareness and then looking at elevating equity. Uh, Like Jamila, I am also a mom of three teenage boys. And so we definitely have that in common, but we also have a passion for education and a passion for supporting students. And so Jamil and I met about a year and a half ago at a conference in New Jersey.
0: Wow, you only met a year and a half ago. I thought you guys have been friends forever. You have a a beautiful (laughs) friendship. It's it's obvious when, when I'm in your company. It's lovely to see that. So our work today for our listeners really begins a deep dig, and I say begins a deep dig into diversity and equity. It's a conversation that we begin today, share with our listeners, and it's a conversation that we, all of us, listening and speaking, need to continue through the rest of our lives. One of the great traditions and, and, and beliefs that, that I love is the Native uh, American people, the Indigenous people of the Northeast, had a a tradition called seven generations. And the belief was that if you had a truth to share, you had a responsibility to share that truth. And you had a responsibility to take care of the three generations that came before you to honor them. And I'm looking at our friends right now, knowing that we have many generations before us that we must honor as we speak today. We must also care for The generation we're in right now, the moms, the dads, the aunts and uncles, the grandparents and the children. And then we have a responsibility three generations after us. And I happen to believe that probably we should probably take ownership for much more than that. But I'm so grateful we're all here today. So we're going to begin with some questions. I'm going to ask Jamila and Krista to kind of weigh on these questions. I, I may offer a thought or two. Mike, please feel free from your perspective as a dad, but also as a special ed teacher in the public schools of Wiss and School District. So my friends, our first question, how do we hold ourselves? How do we hold ourselves and each other accountable for culturally responsive schools? That's a big one. Here we are as as educators, how do we hold ourselves first and then each other accountable to help create and ensure culturally responsive schools?
2: I can start off with this one. And when we were thinking about some of these questions and how large and deep they were, I think... We process three different parts here. Is one, how do we hold ourselves accountable? How do we hold each other accountable? But then also looking at what does it mean to be culturally responsive? And so if we can, I think we'd like to start with what does it mean to be culturally responsive? And Jamila and I have had many conversations about the difference between being multicultural and celebrating multiculturalism and then moving. And that's the beginning of a continuum where culturally responsive schools and pedagogy and teaching is at the other end. That's where we want to be. And in our conversations, Jamila has had really great analogies that I would love for her to share um, about how we can understand the difference between multicultural ed, which is generally where we started when we dive into diversity, awareness, and even 20, 30 years ago, but now what is being referred to as culturally responsive teaching?
1: So I some of my analogies are just sometimes so weird on the way my brain operates, but I was thinking of it in terms of um, meals. I think that particular day I was really hungry. I think that may have kind of sparked it. Um, But I was looking at it uh, in terms of um, when you think of multicultural and you're thinking of just the awareness, the appreciation, you think in terms of like a meal. So you go to a restaurant um, and you order that meal and you know, you appreciate the meal. The the meal is delicious. Um, You take it, you go to the next step and then you learn how to make that meal yourself. Mm -hmm. So you gather the, the ingredients the the, the recipe you're following and then you make it. Okay. And and sometimes the first attempt may be whatever. So you have to kind of like keep going back at it to, to continue to make the meal. And then once you've kind of mastered that meal, you can now let's say it then um, becomes a part of like your family menu, your monthly menu. Um, that's how I looked at it and then everyone is nourished by that meal Um, everyone partakes of it and then it can even go any further to you're invited to um, a gathering where you're it's a potluck you can then take that meal to um, to that potluck gathering and hopefully it'll just continue to just spread out from there I hope that makes sense but that was what was in my head uh, what popped in my head that day.
0: Jamila, that does make sense to me. As I began to hear you and really listen, I, the word practice came to my yes. mind. Practice. So here you have this meal that you loved, and you so loved it that you wanted to, to make it your own. Yes. And, and in making it your own, for me to make anything my own, I need to practice. Mm-hmm. I need to read. I need to study. I need to experience. I need to keep my heart and mind open as I practice. Because if I don't have an open heart and open mind, my practice isn't, isn't good enough. It's not going to help me make that meal again. And then for me, you brought me to that beautiful place of practice. I pass it on. I teach another. And that's, that's gorgeous. I No, I get the analogy. I think it's lovely.
2: I think one of the pieces, too, that really stuck with me was it's very intentional and there's a goal. Ah. So in multicultural education, we want to develop an awareness of diversity and an appreciation. But when we're talking about culturally responsive teaching, as educators, we have a responsibility to nourish every single child in that classroom. Ah that we need to help them grow socially, emotionally, and academically to the best of their ability. And so I love that, that analogy of we need to make sure everybody at the table is nourished and that they, it's, the meal has pieces of it that they like and that resonates with them and that has a flavor that they, that they can pull from.
0: So, Krista, you just used some pretty powerful words. Nourishing. Just let's, let's, let's go back to Jamila's analogy, nourishing. And you said nourishing every single child in that classroom. That is significant. Now, for me, that lights up my heart. For some other folks, it's going to scare the heck out of them. Say, well, how can I do that? how can I nourish every child in this classroom? And then you added to it. You added, nourish them socially, emotionally, and academically. So, so my friends, can you speak to that? Uh, speak to that to our friends who are listening, who are saying, yes, I'm with you. Help me do that. How do I do that? Do you want me how to- do you do that? Go
2: ahead. Go ahead. No, that- Mike this is the part you can edit out right
0: no no worries this is beautiful no we're, we're friends talking and we're friends listening so here we go we go back to Jamila's announcement how do we help them make the meal yeah
2: I, I we need to get to know our kids we need to know their culture know what's important to them know their identity and welcome that and so here's where I messed up 10 years ago when I started teaching about culturally responsive teaching, I'm like Googling, how do I reach my black kids? How do I reach my Latinx kids? And I found stuff on the internet. I found it. It's there, but that's not the way to go. That's not the information. And if you find something that says this will work with black students or Hispanic students or Latinx students or Asian students, you're missing the point. It's not about that. It's about looking at what is common in across all cultures, um, what story mm-hmm. elements can be pulled in, um, re- relating back to funds of knowledge, what's important in the families and what what expertise the families have, um, looking at repetition and call and response and mnemonics, looking at analogies mm. and how you bring those into the classroom um, it's what we have always I think known as good teaching but it has that relationship piece as well Mm -hmm.
1: and it's welcoming their individual experiences so having that opportunity similar to like you think of elementary level and they're doing the um the show and tell and more than just bringing in you know just something and you know talking about it and passing it around but allowing them to maybe even share an experience have um that's the best way, I think, for us to even teach the other students in the classroom how to listen, you know, and then um, developing uh, the ability for them to, to, to ask reflective questions. I think that can tie in as well with, um, with it being culturally responsive and social emotional, like just tying it all in. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. So as I listen to both of you speak, the words relationship and connection Came, came ringing into my mind. And as I've been talking to superintendents, principals, staff, and students this summer, those are the words that people are crying out for right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and what, I'm, what I'm reflecting on as both of you speak, we have always been crying out for that. The human being, with all of our exquisite diversity, we're asking, know me, see me hear me. And so are you, uh, I was going to ask a question, but I'm going to jump ahead. What I hear you saying ties into my belief. That first day, that first week, it's all relationship building.
1: Absolutely.
0: It's all connection. And And yeah, I'm going to be radical. Put the academics on the side for a little bit, especially now
2: yeah absolutely and get use this time to build that sense of community there are like i mentioned before um cultural pieces that span across all race and ethnic groups and socioeconomic statuses and languages and religions and other ones to look into are music and the role yeah. that music plays um looking at at um the idea of collaboration and collectivism and giving them tasks and activities to work on in small groups and giving them opportunities to get to know one another socially.
1: And Tom, you had said something, you know, just even with this time, like what we're going to go into this upcoming school year with. And we need to be mindful of being trauma sensitive. Yes. Because we just from the pandemic itself but then whatever each child had the experience of being home whatever that was like whether you know um it was not having access to the resources or the devices um or the the the, the internet um access whether it's um, uh, black and brown families and you throw in you know george floyd and brianna taylor and all of these things like um, those who have had, who've been impacted, they've, they've lost loved ones due to COVID-19. All of this needs to be thought about and, and looked at from a trauma perspective. And you're right. The first couple of weeks, no, no curriculum, no, no academics. That should really be just that, that bonding and, um, relationship building and that, that rapport building and trust. Like the trust has to be, you know, established. I'd had a conversation with, um. A, a fellow uh, counselor in my district, and she had said, What about those black and brown kids who are already going to have the separation anxiety, but now they're being handed off to a white teacher or vice versa?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, maybe it's not a black or brown child, and maybe it's the, on the opposite end of it, and they're being handed off to me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is so ha- being sensitive to what their needs are, being sensitive to what um, what was going on in that household, the conversations that were had in that household and how it um, how it impacted them and how it's going to view how they view us.
0: So, Jamila, you bring another really critical, uh, critically important issue, trauma, trauma informed care. And, and I would offer that all of us in the past five months, have experienced a, some level of trauma, absolutely some level of grief and loss. For our black and brown children and our black and brown families and, 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 and community, add another layer of trauma and grief and loss. We have children, to me they're, they're babies, five, six, seven, eight years old, watching murder, on television and that it doesn't get any more real than that you know when i was a boy you had to work hard to see something on tv it wasn't the the most natural thing today it's 24 7. so jamila I, I am with you trust is the word so let let me again ask you to to, to dig deep It's the first day black children, brown children, white children in our school. And I'm a counselor and I'm a teacher and I'm a principal. What am I doing to build trust? What am I building to let that child know you are safe here? Because until I feel I'm safe, I'm not going to learn.
2: If I can, I think, The prep work has to happen before that first day of school. Yes. The teachers, every single one of us, needs to continue along our own personal learning journey and be prepared to answer questions that our kids ask us around, does my life matter? Mm. Am I important? Mm. Am I safe here? And as an educator, we have to be ready to say yes, your life matters, period. Black lives matter, period. Brown lives matter, period. That it's not, well, all lives matter, honey. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. We're not talking about all lives at this point. We're looking at specific groups of populations who need to really know that their life does matter and is important because they're being targeted right now and we're watching it on TV. I don't think this is something that educators can wing it when they get in on the first day Uh we need to be having these conversations with our colleagues with our friends with our peers reading challenging our own biases and holding ourselves accountable first Uh so that when we get in front of our children our students whatever age they are we can with confidence know we are creating that emotionally and physically safe environment where It's not just about us saying it, but it's about them feeling it. Mm
1: -hmm. And I think even before, and um, we had technology on our side. And so I think instead of waiting until whatever meet the teacher is going to look like, I think there should be some type of um, connection made from the school principal, from the school counselor, social worker, um, and then the teachers with those families. I think they can, they have the ability to do like a one-on-one, some type of FaceTime, something to just introduce themselves to um, Love it. to these families. And um, and you start there. And now you're a familiar face. Now it's whatever, whatever school is going to look like in September, August, September. Now you're a familiar face and you're not just, the shock of day one of school and, you know, the first time they're seeing you.
0: I love that idea, Jamila, and, and kind of piggybacking with Krista. Our work to start school begins now. Yes. July, it begins now. Talking with the other counselors, talking with the principals, talking with the superintendents, and crafting the most respectful, empathetic, caring, Visual communication we can for our children. Krista, you said something that resonated with me. As that child is in front of you, that black child, that brown child, and and, and we and you said, you know, Black Lives Matter. And, and what I would add is, your life matters to me. That's how we build trust. We personalize this. We dare to be vulnerable we dare to be vulnerable and 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 right now as a white middle class older man i need to lead with courage and vulnerability for everyone and particularly my my black and brown brothers and sisters right now that's my belief
2: and so as as A white woman who's been learning and on this journey for 20 years, I'm constantly asking myself and holding myself accountable by always learning and growing. And I was listening to a panel um, last week and, and they said, we need to be doing the work on our own first. There are a ton of podcasts and great books and articles to read we need to read, we need to become aware, we need to have conversations for those of us who are white with our white friends and talk about what is our role, because it's not up to our friends of color to tell us that. It's our job to learn and to support them and to let them know that they're seen, that we care, and that we're learning to be better. Um, And so, and, and, and then coming around to a conversation and one of the things that Jamila and I, we, we box. So it's a like a walkie talkie speaker app and we end up, vo- we've been boxing for the last year and a half and it's almost daily, I'd say. <laughs> um, and I asked her, you know, I've been thinking about what my role is because I might be able to have a work opportunity with a school district that knows me, but my voice as a white woman is not the only voice they need to be hearing. Mm -hmm. What is my role in this work? And, um, I asked Jamila her experiences and her thoughts on this. And, um, one of the most profound pieces that she said is one of the first things that needs to happen is for people to acknowledge experiences. And so, um, i just i I know Jamila, you had a story around that, and I just think that that was really powerful that just because something is not my truth doesn't mean that it's not a truth and it's not somebody 's truth, and that shapes how they live their life yeah.
1: yes, and so i've I've had many um many times, especially over the past like several years, of where I've become more vocal in talking about experiences that i've had people people who genuinely i believe care about me but have said like. I think you were reading into that. Don't you think that that you were reading into that situation? And, you know, I said to them, no, I I connected with that same feeling that you get in your stomach that you got when you had the experience like several years ago. Like I make that connection. And that was for me where um, because I do I sit back a lot and I'm like, all right, was this this happened? Was it because I'm a black woman or was it like what, what? Or is it because I look much younger than my stated age. So I'm always kind of like going through my head and thinking, and you know, the um, it was a friend's husband who had said, um, it was something dealing with, um, with, and it was actual uh, me wondering if it was a racial um, incident. And he had said, well, ra- he said, racism doesn't exist. That was, and I said, for you to say that is to then say that my experiences don't matter for you, that, that what I experienced, that I'm not, it's not accurate and what I'm, what I'm depicting. It's not, it's not, it's inaccurate. Um, I said, you need to walk up, you need to walk in my shoes. Like you can't, you can't say to me that what I experienced didn't happen. That's like actually saying, you know, a rape victim, well, that rape didn't happen. You misunderstood you know, the situation, and we've heard that, you know, I think, you know, victims have heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the same with whether it's, you know, a bias or, um, or just flat out just racism. We need to hear the experience and, and, um, and validate it, validate those feelings that went along with it. Like, that's what helps me. That's what would help me not to just say you miss it. Cause then, I would sit back and start to question myself, you know, or someone else would, would do it. And for me in that moment, I was strong and I'm like, no, I know what I experienced. I know what this was, but for someone else, I think that's been oftentimes why people have shut down and they won't talk about, um, the things that they've experienced because it's made, they're made to feel as though it didn't happen. Almost like a gaslighting type of a, um, situation if you, you know, I know I'm bringing that in, but it's, it's, you, you're, you're making a big deal about it. You misunderstood it. Um, That's probably not what that was. No, that those experiences need to be, um, need to be validated. And the same goes with children and like students in a classroom. If a student comes and they're in your classroom and maybe there's a discussion about something and that, that student then begins to, to explain their experience or to describe it I think it is so harmful for an educator to blow it off, to just say, no, you misunderstood that. Even if it's with another teacher, I've had experiences with teachers in high school where it was a race thing. You know, um, I grew up in South Jersey, in inner city, but it was, we had a very mixed high school and I, I, I felt it. I knew there was, was, was something. Um, I did have some safe places to go and discuss what I'd experienced, but that's not the case for every student in every school. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I appreciate those individuals who validated what I felt. Um, but again, that's not the case. I uh, That's not the case. It's not even the case with colleagues. So it's not the case with, with um, educators and their students either.
0: Jamila, as you're speaking, two words came out for me. Uh, as, as you were talking about that, that moment when that courage came up inside of you and you said, no, this is how I feel. This is my experience. Mm-hmm. When someone else is trying to minimize your life experience, that, that, you know, so, so what can we do as teachers to empower our children's courage?
2: I also think, again, it comes back to that work we need to do on the inside. Uh-huh. And I know, Tom, you know the story. Jamila, you know the story. My, my ex-husband, I met him when I was 19 and he told me how he grew up in poverty and was in foster care and adoption and lived in a tent in the middle of the woods for his ninth grade or his middle school years. And, I, and I, I'm embarrassed to say it, but I will. I did not believe him. Uh-huh. We continued to date for a year and a half. And I feel that it's not that I thought he was lying, but I had created this ultra protective safe space Mm -hmm. where I didn't want to see reality because it was going to topple what I knew to be true in my head, Mm -hmm. like a cognitive dissonance. And that's how we get people to change. Mm -hmm. I think people don't want to validate because then it breaks down everything that they have known to be true in their life. And we have to let that go. It hurts and it's painful. And he took me and I saw the tent. And I'm like, oh my God, you're not lying. Like, and then I was embarrassed and ashamed of myself. And it's, it, I didn't outright ever tell him I thought he was lying to me, but I didn't fully believe him. And I did the same thing. Be, and I felt like it was because I was protecting myself And I realized that every time I learn something new, I have to deconstruct what I thought I knew and reconstruct a new reality. But it's a necessary part of learning and it's what builds relationships with people that you're, oh my gosh, I didn't know that something like that happened. That's awful. And that shouldn't have happened to you. You know, you shouldn't have to experience these things now that I have this new awareness, what can I do
0: better? Mm. The uh, You just reminded me of that beautiful line that we both love by Maya Angelou. When you know better, you oh, do better. Yeah. And that's that's really what we're trying to do here. And I, I, I may need your help going back to the image you created, Krista, when you were talking about the experience with your ex-husband, that you didn't want to believe it because you didn't want to burst your own bubble that protected you. Yes. You know, so he, you know, here we are and I'm hearing, you know, I hear politicians now saying that, you know, uh, America was built on the great middle class. Well, baloney, (laughs) Uh, most of the American economy was built on slavery. Yes.
2: And, and, um, on, peoples who were marginalized at the time.
0: Yeah. And, but until
2: we acknowledge that and acknowledge the reality of that, we can't move forward. So I also think by not validating it, it means we don't have to do anything about it. Yeah. We don't have to take responsibility for it. And like Jamila said, we cannot let our kids continue to feel disempowered or invalidated. It's not fair to them.
1: And when you say like acknowledge and we all understand and know what acknowledge is, but I think like, in just reading through some things on social media, I think some people think acknowledges yet yeah, happened, but we're so much further ahead. And so, yeah, but, and then the reality is, but cancels out like the yes. whole previous yes. part of like yes. the, the sentence. Yes. So you can't like, yes, it happened. And what do we need to do? moving forward, but it's, it, it goes into the, but like, yeah, it happened, but that was 60 years ago. That was so many years ago. And it's, you know, everybody, we're all, we're all equal now. Uh, and that's their idea of acknowledging.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: that's also, that's no, that, that again, back to your point, Kristen, that's what allows us to falsely protect ourselves, you know, so, so that So we don't, so it doesn't have to be messy. Mm -hmm. Well, it's messy. Life is messy. And we're all in a big mess right now. (laughs) And and we've we've got to take action. We have to take responsible, loving action. So I'm going to bring us to, to another question. And this one really goes back to what you're talking about now is educating the adults, preparing the adults, preparing the staff. So what key ingredients need to be in a diversity and equity professional development? What are the key ingredients? What are the essential issues? So both of you have been involved in professional development. Both of you, uh, I certainly trust from my perspective. What would you say if I said, Krista, Jamila, I need you to do this professional development. What would you say, Tom, this is what needs to be there?
1: The first thing, it goes self-awareness. Like you have to know where you are. Like there's no way to further develop yourself yeah. if you don't know where you currently are. So I think there needs to be some type of inventory of you checking yourself, where am I? Where am I at on this journey? Where am I at with my thoughts? Where am I at with um with my feelings about, you know, different things? And then take it to the, you know, go there with um whether it's, I know we, had, we touched on whether it's like reading, you know, the reading materials, um, podcasts, things, you know, th- discussions, having, um, having those, um, those dialogues, having it, schools need to um, create an atmosphere. We're saying like a safe, safe atmosphere for our, for our students,
0: mm-hmm.
1: our faculty and staff need a safe atmosphere and environment where they can process through this. Yes. Again, we cannot have professional development if we can't take inventory, but we can't be true to ourselves if we don't feel we're in a place of safety where we can
2: express our truths. Mm -hmm. And And knowing that we're all coming at different points in this journey. And so our role in our account, so that other question was about how do we hold each other accountable is that we need to have a collective organ, like a collective agreement that we are going to push each other forward and uh. challenge each other. I'm Jamila and my friend Megan. Um, they hold me accountable and I am going to mess up. This is messy. Sure. And I'm going to make mistakes. I've been socialized for 43 years to think a certain way. And you have to actively challenge that. But I need my good friends who care about me to say, Krista, you messed up. Or Krista, you need to to rethink that. And because I know they care about me and they know my heart is in this, I want to listen to them. And so you need to have what I refer to as like an accountability partner. Who you can bounce ideas off of and say, "I'm trying to learn and grow in this way, and if I mess up, I need you to to check me and to let me know that so I can do better next time." But it's hard because as soon as we mess up, we want to go run and I okay maybe not we I want to go run and (laughs) hide (laughs) and be like, "I'm not coming out. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm embarrassed." But that's part of it is modeling that journey, and you know. I have the privilege of going to hide if I want to yeah. and doing the work. And I am very aware of that. And that's, that keeps me going because there are so many of my friends and my students who don't have that. Yeah. And it's reminded I'm thinking about it, even in acknowledging experiences and like Jamil and I are both parents of boys, but the conversations she has with her amazing son are different than the conversations I have with my sons in this, time. Yeah. And that's that breaks my heart. But we have to challenge each other to grow and and do better and be better so that we're not having dissimilar conversations over time.
0: Trista, one of the things you said that you are safe, you feel safe when your friends challenge you and invite you to grow. And I want to reflect that back to professional development. What I'm hearing, what I believe for us to be successful in this ongoing conversation and to to move to action and to help our children in professional development, we must establish, and this takes time, we must establish a friend-like professional atmosphere. So again, Back to, for me, one of the most powerful words Jamila said today, trust. I need to work as a building leader, and and I, I don't mean just a principal. I mean everybody on that staff has leadership potential. How do I build trust here? I build trust by being vulnerable. I build trust by sharing my truth and listening to your truth, by really spending time in dialogue. And, and with all respect to you, not running away. And I know that's hard. I know that's hard. When I'm hurt, I'd, I'd rather run away, but I, I've reached an age now where I know it doesn't work.
2: <laughs> I think too, one of the things that, and having done professional development around diversity and equity is that it needs to be small groups of people mm. that build that safe, trusted community. If you're looking at having a speaker come in with 70 to address 70 people, it's a start, but you need to go deeper than that. It needs to go beyond that. And I'd recommend having people do a self assessment, like Jamila said, and maybe giving people work at the level that they're at that continually moves them along. Like, I wouldn't recommend that everybody pick up How to Be an Anti Racist as their first book. But I would say Whistling Vivaldi
0: mm. it
2: talks about stereotypes by Claude Steele is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And then over time, start mixing up small groups where you're blending people who are at different points so that they can learn and grow together. And Jamil, I see you nodding your head. So if you want to.
1: No, I was actually thinking that when you were saying the small groups, I was thinking of, you know, when you, you've, I think, and, and, the, and the era of me growing up, I remember all of us, as far as reading groups, everyone was just lumped together based on your reading skills. So there, if you were lower level reading, then all of the lower level level reading students were in the same group. And then if you were high, everyone was, was. but there is no potential for the growth and or, or the different points of view and a different perspective. So people, those small groups should have a balance of people at different stages of where they are okay. so that there could be true professional development to occur. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that we can do as folks who provide professional development is to help those building leaders and those district leaders assess where their folks are so that we can have the most diversity of experience in those, in those various groups. So as, as we start to wind down this first of many sessions, let me go back to that question. If I'm asking the two of you to come into professional development, along with building relationship, along with building trust, along with small group presentations, along with some pre-reading, give me two or three of the most important issues that you'd want a you'd school to, to work with you on to help them grow. two or three huh
2: okay. <laughs> only two or three
0: <laughs> just to start
2: <laughs> i think for me i would want to have the teachers do a deeper dive into identity development and into all their different all the different aspects of culture that make them who they are and understand the socialization process and how that influences that we all have biases, but that's because we've been socialized to have them and um, that it doesn't make us a bad person, but we we can actively challenge that. And so what lens do we view? I think when we know what glasses we wear, what lens we view the world from, it allows us greater ability to switch lenses out because we're really clear on where we stand, that it allows us actually, interestingly enough, freedom to move in other directions. Mm. Um, I would also say that what I'm hearing from students is around this topic of microaggressions and micro-messages, and how can we help teachers be more tuned in to messages that are being said or that they might be saying, because I've done it too, I've said things and I didn't realize the impact that it would have because it wasn't my intent, but how can we help educators be able to not let those go by and to take them as teachable moments so that students don't feel that they're on their own? Like Jamila had all that emotional energy around, did I just hear that? Is this really what's happening? Am I processing this correctly? Um, that other people are saying yes, you did process that, that correctly, and and let's work together mm-hmm. so that you're not feeling alone. So I would say identity development and microaggressions.
0: And I, I've seen you do that work, Kristen. I I know, and I have felt that's a very emotionally safe beginning. Mm-hmm.
2: And I'm also working with old. I'm working with staff and older students, so I know that Jamila working with the younger yeah. one, has a very different perspective because. Jamila, if I remember too, a lot of our conversations are around how do you get parents involved?
1: Right, right. And I would back up because the the everything is a trickle down effect. And so the reality is, you can have a a school superintendent who wants to bring this in, or wants as a, as a, uh, or even a principal to bring this into the school. Mm-hmm. But have they done the work?
2: Yeah. Yep.
1: So I think it starts off because you can't get buy-in. You can't, like, you have to be, you have to be true to yourself. And so I love those two points, Krista. And I would love to see that at an administrator level, first and foremost.
2: Mm.
1: Um, So that then they know how, you know, and they know what that, what it feels like. So they know that, you know, because I think, you know, sounds great on paper. They don't understand, like, the, the, um, the intensity of, of, of the work that has to be done. And until you can feel that for yourself, like you, you don't know. Um, and then yes, with the younger, um, younger children, it's, it's difficult to teach this in a way. I know Krista, we had talked about like in having conversations with children, have the like parents having those conversations prior to their exposure. You know, you have some children, you know, for us, it's their first school experience. And so outside of their world of um, of whatever home looks like for them, um, they're coming into a diverse school, a diverse classroom, and they're seeing um, different, um, different skin tones. Um, there are many of our preschoolers, I'll walk into a classroom and they will automatically associate me with whatever black child is in that room. Are you so-and-so's mommy? Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Because it's not, it's not the norm for them to even see. um, It's very, we're very limited on um, our percentage of, um, of uh, black and brown uh, staff members in our building. But if parents could expose um, the, the children to, to that through, summer, we have summer reading assignments for, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers in different levels. Why not do summer reading assignments for those, um, those children who are going to be entering into preschool? And what does that look like? Um, uh, the, the books that, that, expose them to the different, um, different colors. Um, I'm thinking right away of even touching on you know, just identity. So, um, I'm gonna pronounce her last name wrong, but Lupita, and she was in Black Panther, the actress, she wrote a book, um, Wee, I think, is um, the the pronunciation of the book. And it just talks about your, how beautiful your, your skin is and just embracing your identity and, and who you, who you were made, um, to be, um, books like that, books that are just exposing our kids to, um, there's another one. I think it's like oh, something, Abuela, a, a chair for obuela, or something like that, like just different, um, cultural books that they can be exposed to prior to them starting preschool. Wow. And in this age, you know, with everything that's going on, libraries that are closed, having the accessibility of the read alouds through YouTube or through um any other like format like that, um, and then a suggested activity to go along with that book. I think that will then not only will it um expose like the child, but I know many times when my son was younger, I learned through him, like I was working on an activity with him and I'm like, oh, that's for, I was learning it as he was learning it. So it might be something that the parents are learning as the children are learning it.
2: I love you always have not only the social worker hat, but the administrator hat. (laughs) You see things from so many angles that really just deepen everybody's learning and mine in particular. This is why I love our conversations.
0: (laughs) Thank you. Uh, Thank you all all for this conversation. Uh, I want our listeners to know that uh, this clearly is the first of many conversations. We're going to continue this with Jamila and Krista and Mike. I also want our listeners to know that this Thursday night, Krista is going to be our our lead presenter on our social emotional learning roundtable, which happens every other Thursday night at seven o'clock. And our topic Uh, This night and other nights following will be on diversity and equity. So join us, please, for that. And as Jamila and Krista have reminded us, allow this podcast to be part of your resources as we get ready to go back to school. As soon as Mike does his brilliance with editing and, and producing, we'll have this ready for you. So friends, please join us again. Jamila, Krista, Mike, thank you so much for this beginning of a continuing essential conversation. Thank you.
2: Thank you.